Becoming like Jesus involves a painful tension between the Lord's will and that of others. Sometimes it's even a heartbreaking tension, especially when God's will is that we would suffer to become more like Jesus and other people wish to spare us from that pain. We continue our study of the book of Acts this morning. If uh, you need a Bible or an outline, they're just outside the door, uh, out there on that, that table. You can help yourself to that. And as we continue in the book of Acts, we're in uh, chapter 21, where we will see this tension between the Lord's will for us and that of others for us. We'll see that tension surface itself multiple times. As Paul's dear friends beg him to do something, anything, other than what God has called him to do. The Spirit of Christ made Paul well aware that imprisonment and affliction await him if he goes to Jerusalem. But he is constrained by the Spirit to go there anyway. Because in Jerusalem is his ticket to eventually get to Rome, where he wants to preach the message of Jesus' kingdom in the heart of the empire. And so we come to chapter 21 this morning, where when it comes to Paul's life direction, the will of Paul's friends comes into conflict with the will of God for him. And these aren't unbelievers or people seeking Paul's harm. These are people who know him, who love him, who want what's best for him. And in the act of seeking his best interests, they break his heart. Have you ever had to say farewell to well-meaning friends or family who were getting in the way of God's call on your life? It can be quite heartbreaking. Yet the hope of our text this morning is that this is part of God's process of making you more like Jesus. It's all worth it, and it's part of the Lord's grand design. So what exactly does the transformational heartbreak of farewells look like? You see in your outline, there is the heartbreak of don't go. There is the heartbreak of, this won't end well, and all of that is simply the beginning of the end. Let me pray, and we'll dive into our passage. Our Father in heaven, please help us and open our eyes by the power of your Spirit among us and within us, that we might see your glory, and we might see this heartbreak of farewells which is making us more like Jesus. Please prepare us for this and equip us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we have the heartbreak of don't go. I'll read verses 1 through 6 of Acts chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, And from there to Patara. 
And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. The first heartbreak we see in this passage is the heartbreak of don't go. Our hero, Paul, along with his entourage, just finished speaking with the leaders of the church from the city of Ephesus. They had come out to the coast of modern-day Turkey to meet with him, and he has entrusted to them the care of Christ's people in that city. He believes he will never see them again. And now they've parted ways here in in verse 1, when we had parted from them and, and set sail. Paul and his team hop on the ship and they sail in stages. They hit some islands uh, uh, down along the coast. They, they go down in stages around the coast of Turkey. And in verses 2 and 3, they come all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. They pass that big triangular island of Cyprus. And they land back in the Middle East in the city of Tyre in the region of Syria north of Israel. And it's in Tyre that the plot of the narrative here, introduces an ominous note. Verse 4. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, if this was the only sentence I gave you to read, you would probably hear it as saying that the Spirit of God did not want Paul to go on to Jerusalem. And Paul was being disobedient by going on anyway in the next few verses. But this sentence is not the only sentence in the book. It comes in chapter 21, after 20 chapters describing the work of God's Spirit and the expansion of the kingdom of Christ to the nations. And the narrator has already given us a few critical statements that need to guide us in the way we hear this verse. I I summarized it in my introduction, but it's worth taking a closer look. Paul's resolve to go to Jerusalem was in the Spirit. If you look at Acts 19, verse 21, I think. I forgot to write it down. It's 20 or 21. Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem because after that he said, I must see Rome. So you see, he was obeying the spirit of God by by resolving to go to Rome. And then in chapter 20, if if you flip there, verses 22 and 23, Paul told the the elders of the Ephesian church, he said, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment 
and afflictions await me. So as we read this narrative as a story, as a, as a whole book, we understand that the Spirit of God has constrained Paul to go to Jerusalem, preparing him to meet imprisonment and afflictions there, just like in every other city he's been to. So Paul's resolve in this life direction was in full obedience to the Spirit of God. And in fact, we can trace this direction for his life all the way back to the initial call of Jesus on his life. At the time Paul was converted, here's what Jesus had to say about him in Acts 9, verse 16. Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So all of this is in the background. When we now come to chapter 21 and we read about the disciples of Jesus telling Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. We already know that the Spirit is telling him to go. So it must be the case that the Spirit is simply telling these folks what will happen there. What will happen when he goes. And they are perhaps misapplying that foresight by appealing to him not to go. And in fact, that's precisely what we see happen in the next paragraph. Okay, we'll get there in just a few minutes. And that's exactly how it lays out. The Spirit says, here's what's going to happen. And then they apply it by saying, don't go. So that's just summarized here. The tension established in the story is this. The Spirit of God has told Paul, go. Paul has responded in sincere faith. I will go. But the community of believers is begging him, don't go. The Spirit says, go. Paul says, I will go. And the community says, please don't go. And all of this is complicated by the fact that every one of these people has been filled with the Spirit of God. Every one of them is seeking to submit to the Lord. Every one of them wants to honor God. And every one of them wants what's best for each other. But they still end up with conflicting conclusions about what Paul should do in this case. So in verses 5 and 6... Here, back in chapter 21, they make their way to the beach and they bid farewell. It's a touching scene. There's so much affection and friendship here as they pray, kneeling on the beach. But what do you do when you've got a call from God on your life that others don't recognize? Even very well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ. Or maybe they do recognize it, but they don't prefer the implications of it. My wife and I have both had to work through this issue with our families when God called each of us to serve him as missionaries. Even if your parents are really great people with much wisdom and love, sometimes Adult children have slightly different expectations for themselves than their parents had for them as their children. And the Lord's expectations ought to take center stage and shine brightly. For us, there have been times of joy mixed in with times of pain and heartbreak when it came to our families. And I'm sure many of you can relate. 
Now, before I get to more concrete application on this, let's first take a look at the next scene, which offers even more detail and description of the heartbreak of such farewells. We not only have the heartbreak of don't go, but now look at the heartbreak of this won't end well. Verses 7 through 14. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. This second paragraph takes the heartbreak to another level. Not only is there the heartbreak of don't go, but they add to it the pain of don't go because this won't end well. Paul and others, those traveling with him here, depart from Tyre in verse 7 and they go through another city before arriving further south. They're making their way closer and closer to Jerusalem. They get to the coastal city of Caesarea. There they end up staying with Philip the Evangelist. This guy's a big deal. This isn't just a nobody that Paul's dealing with. This guy was one of the original seven gentlemen chosen along with Stephen. If you remember, in chapter 6, he was chosen as one of the early servants of the church to help with distributing the food donations to needy widows. You may also remember him as the guy in chapter 8 who went up to Samaria and led many people to Christ there. And then he ended up meeting with a eunuch a court official from Ethiopia, and and he explained to that guy the book of Isaiah, winning him to Christ and baptizing him and sending him back to Africa to preach the kingdom of God there. This is the same Philip. Luke calls him out. He was one of the seven. Those were the seven selected in Acts chapter 6. And now he has established roots in the city of Caesarea with his four unmarried daughters who are prophetesses. What a great idea to have four daughters, not let them get married, so they can just live with their dad and prophesy. I like it. We're we're set. In verse 10, another prophet comes down from Jerusalem named Agabus. We've seen this guy before as well. He showed up back in chapter 11, to predict 
through the foresight of the Holy Spirit that a great famine was coming over all the world. This led the largely non-Jewish church in Antioch to take up a collection and send relief to the needy Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So this guy, Agabus, he's got a good track record. He's a known prophet of God. He loves Jesus. He has a history of submission to the spirit of Jesus. And he now acts like one of the Old Testament prophets by acting out a little parable. Right in front of them, he takes Paul's belt uh, and he, he ties up his own hands and his feet with it. And he predicts that the same thing is going to happen to the owner of that belt. Hmm. Paul, that's who we're talking about. If he continues on to Jerusalem, here's what the Holy Spirit says is going to happen. So you see how this works? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, this prophet gains some insight into the future. And now look at how everybody goes to apply that prophecy, that insight. In verse 12, they begin urging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And that includes Luke himself, who's writing this. He says, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. You see, there are two things at play here. The first is the prediction by the Spirit of God of what will happen. And the second thing is the application of the people seeking to persuade Paul not to go. We hear this prediction, so what are we going to do about that? Paul, please don't go. This won't end well. You're going to get bound up. You're going to be imprisoned. And this is drawn out here in some detail for us so we can understand what happened up in verse 4 as well. The issue is not that the Spirit of God can't make up his mind. Do I want to constrain him to go or do I not want him to go because he'll suffer? That's not the case. The issue is all about what other people make of the foreknowledge and wisdom granted to them by the Spirit. And so Paul and his friends draw very different applications. Paul says, I'm willing to go. I understand what's ahead of me. I'm doing this with my eyes open. And they say, this won't end well. So please don't go. But he says, this is what I am constrained to do. And this tension nearly explodes out of Paul in verse 13, where he just asks them flat out, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. You see, there is a tragic farewell that must take place. Yes, there is a literal farewell when Paul hops on a ship or a wagon train and physically travels to a new locale, but there is also the spiritual farewell or the emotional farewell of having to part ways ideologically. What you think I must do to honor the Lord is not what I believe I must do to honor the Lord. And it's not what God has told me to do. To honor him. And friends, after nearly 40 years of such experiences, I can attest that this is never easy. It is always heartbreaking to some degree or other. Sometimes such farewells must take place on a dramatic scale. Like with Paul here. God is calling me to take the good news about Jesus 
to an unreached country where my life will be in danger. And even my Christian parents believe it is not worth the risk. They would prefer I stay here and become a school teacher or a medical professional. Maybe that's your situation. And it's that kind of drama. But at other times, the farewells are less dramatic, though perhaps no less heartbreaking. We saw it all through the pandemic, where some people believed it would most honor God and love neighbor to mask up and stay away from people, and others believed it would most honor God and love neighbor to resist masking and continue pursuing people in relationships. And both could say to the other, friend, please don't go there. This won't end well. I felt it often as a leader of a mission agency when people have very particular ideas about what we should do as an agency or what I should do as a leader. And very well-meaning people can have very strong opinions about the best way forward through some difficulty or other. Or they believe I must make some certain decision or I must give a certain speech or I must act in a certain way as a leader to better rally the troops. And how painful is it when one reason for the tension is when one side believes and can even prove that the other side's choice will not end well. If you don't do what I'm saying, you're going to have a lot more pain. And you will have done it to yourself for making this choice. I confess, I can think of times when I have made this very argument to others. Please don't do this. You will be responsible for your own suffering. Can you relate? Maybe one friend reasons with another that continuing in a dating relationship will tie them down and ruin their freedom. Maybe well-meaning believers have sought to caution you regarding your educational decisions for your children. Or maybe grandparents have had strong opinions on how you ought to run your family. Or maybe your parents have tried to guide you students toward a certain major or career path that they think is best for you. Or for whatever reason, somebody thinks you shouldn't go in a certain direction or do a certain thing because it will cause you greater suffering. It will not end well. What do we do with all of this? How does this apply? Friends, don't be surprised when there is a tension between the Lord's will for your life and that of others. This is part of life in a fallen world. And in a moment, I'd like to show you that this is part of how our God and Father is making each of us more like Jesus. Because here's the thing. Just because something will be painful or will result in more suffering doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Perhaps God would actually have you pursue the path of greater suffering to bring him more glory and please don't misunderstand me i'm not saying that you are free to do whatever you want to do no matter how much pain it will cause if the bible says not to do something then don't do it god has already spoken into your life direction in those cases i've had dating couples tell me that they believed in their heart that god wanted them to sleep together 
And I can confidently say, no, he does not. That will not end well. And I can show you how and why he has already spoken quite clearly on that one, friends. So if your friends or your parents or your children are begging you not to do something that the Bible says not to do, then please listen to their wise counsel and please don't do it. It's really not worth suffering the consequences of the Lord's discipline for sleeping around or for flirting with that person at the office while you feel estranged from your spouse or for dating a non-Christian or zooming in for church only because it's convenient long after you know it's safe to return in person or choosing a career just for the fame, the money or the security or divorcing your spouse without biblical grounds such as adultery or desertion. So I'm not saying that we ought to reject wise counsel or ever turn our backs on the Lord's direction contained in Scripture. Don't ever turn your back on where God has spoken. But I am saying that this won't end well is not a reason on its own to turn aside from something God has called you to. One of the great blessings of living in a culture that has been deeply impacted historically by the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the quality of life is perhaps higher than ever before in human history. And that's a wonderful blessing. It's not something we ought to be ashamed of. But one of the dangers is that we can take that for granted. And then we begin to look at suffering as something that needs to be avoided at all costs. And so many, many churches and Christians are today are compromising on basic truths that have been clear for thousands of years, all in order to avoid the suffering, the stigma of serving the Lord. What do I mean by basic truths that we see people compromising on all over the place? Truths like this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Let's not compromise on that, even though there's stigma in preaching the resurrection. Or how about this? There is no other name besides Jesus by which people can be saved. Or how about this? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or how about this? God made humanity male and female. Or neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Or how about this? Behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages will stand before the throne of God and worship Jesus the Lamb. Friends, these are some basic truths that are abundantly clear in the scripture that we must not compromise on just because we will suffer stigma. Even if some well-meaning person were to come along and say, look friend, if you keep saying those bigoted and hurtful things When you do that, you make all of us look bad. 
And this won't end well. You're going to end up losing your professional license or your nonprofit status or your reputation. Maybe you'll even get thrown in jail. And we must respond along with Paul in verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem in State College for the name of Jesus Christ. Painful farewells are often necessary. But that's okay, because God is using them to make us more like Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by showing you the beginning of the end. Here in verses 15 and 16. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. In this closing paragraph of our passage, Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem. That's the main thing happening here. And verse 17 goes on to say that the brothers there received him gladly. What's the big deal? Why do I say this is the beginning of the end for Paul or for us? Perhaps you already recognize how momentous this is for Paul to arrive in Jerusalem. In 1921, like I said, he resolved to go there. He's been sailing from region to region, traveling from town to town in order to get here. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and now he is there. To understand why this is momentous in these straightforward verses, you need to remember that the book of Acts is part two of Luke's writings. Part one is what we call the Gospel of Luke. And in that book, Luke narrated another man's journey toward Jerusalem. You see, there was another man who set his face like flint in, in Luke uh, 9. Luke 9. He set his face like flint to move toward Jerusalem. And he went along his journey from town to town, talking to people, until he arrived at this same city to which God's Spirit had directed him. And in fact, Luke The Gospel of Luke drew out that man's journey even further. It lasted 10 chapters where he's constantly on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to Jerusalem. And when that man finally arrived in Jerusalem, imprisonment and affliction awaited him where he was mistrusted and he was framed and he was falsely accused and bound, beaten and eventually executed. Before he got there, however, that man had some close friends who tried to persuade him not to go because of what he had predicted in the power of the Holy Spirit about what was going to happen there. And his friends appealed to him, don't go, this won't end well. And of course, you know, that man was Jesus. You see, what's really going on here in Acts 21 is that Luke is showing us that Paul has become more and more like Jesus. He has become like Jesus in his ministry and his mission. He has become like Jesus in his travels 
and his vision. He has become like Jesus in his spirit-empowered obedience. He has become like Jesus in his suffering and death. And he will then become like Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. And we will see this theme continue from here to the end of the book of Acts. You see, painful farewells are making Paul more like Jesus. And this is our hope, friends. This is what enables us to proceed along a path even when well-meaning people warn us that it will not end well. You see, the only way it could not end well is if you have a faulty view of what exactly the end is. If the end is the suffering and the imprisonment, then of course, you're always going to try to avoid that. But if your end is eternal life, resurrection, and the glory of God that comes after the affliction and imprisonment, then the suffering and the imprisonment is simply your ticket to get there, to the good stuff. That's because Jesus is your life. And when he appears, you will be made just like him. You too will appear with him in glory. But that is only if you trust him now. If you follow him on this path that for a short time may not end well. If you don't yet follow Jesus, please do not settle for your desires to maintain peace and happiness because that will not end well. And God has spoken on that. Your peace and happiness will not last very long for when Jesus Christ finally appears once more, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when the real suffering really begins and it will never end. Please, Let the heartbreak of farewells transform you, all of you, to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you have shared in his sufferings for a time, you will finally share in his unending glory. So we've seen that there is real heartbreak here. There is the heartbreak of don't go. There is the heartbreak of this won't end well, But all of that is simply the beginning of the end. When suffering like Jesus eventually gives way to being exalted to resurrection life with Jesus. And we will see over the next few chapters more and more and more that that is exactly what is on Paul's mind. That the resurrection is coming. After you have suffered a little while, may the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. May he himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are God. And you have placed your calling on our lives. And Lord, you have spoken 
You have called us to walk with you, to be more like Jesus, to proclaim the message of your kingdom, to be conformed to the image of your Son, to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, relying on you, being steadfast in your word and immovable. Please help us. And Lord, especially when this call on our lives brings us into painful farewells, the heartbreak of farewells from well-meaning folks who wish the best for us, and even well-meaning believers at times. Lord, strengthen us and help us to be open to receiving wisdom when you have spoken that we might hear and submit and obey. And, And Lord, when your direction on our lives would take us in a different direction than others wish for us, give us strength and courage to endure the heartbreak of farewells, knowing that this is not the end, but it is worth it to suffer, that glory may come. We ask that you would glorify your name through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.